For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The state auditor releases a nearly year-old investigation of health officials over personal protective equipment at the beginning of the pandemic. More than $5 million of goods were never received, and health officials might have even violated the state constitution. But the biggest news of all might be the fact that the AG's office sat on this report from May of last year until the auditor decided to just go ahead and release it on Wednesday. Neva, why did it take so long to get this out to the public? Well, I think that is a big question and one that certainly uh, I think the uh, AG's office is going to continue to have questions about. I think the the takeaway, obviously, is that when the Tulsa World last week requested the audit from the state auditor and inspector, um, she basically, after conferring with legal counsel and made the determination that uh, that according that there was no state statute statute that uh, gives any state official the authority to withhold this type of information. So she basically said, look, the taxpayers paid for it and they should get it. So um, so now we roll out uh, this information with uh, certainly uh, probably more questions raised than answers. And we have to give the backdrop that the legislature now in the first week of session, I mean, last year about this time, LOFT, the uh, Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, I mean, they were very critical of uh, what had gone on. And so I think we're going to see a lot of focus on this. And, and uh, you know, already as, as we begin to kind of lay out what is in this investigative audit, I think it will, um, I think it will definitely become not only a big topic from the legislative perspective, but it will be a hot political topic in this political season where all of the folks that we're talking about are up for re-election. Ryan. Well, I mean, first of all, let's, I, I want to focus a little bit on the reporting that went into this. Cassie McClung uh, at the Frontier, a fantastic reporter there, announced earlier this week that this was her last week at the Frontier. She's going on to something new. I hope that we still get the benefit of her journalism here in Oklahoma because uh, you know, she did a, an amazing job on this. What a great story to go out on at your six-year career at the uh, at the frontier. And then, second, you know, big kudos to the state auditor and inspector Cindy Bird. Uh, you know, I, I think in the in the last few weeks, uh, she has done more to elevate uh, last couple of years at least. But in the last few weeks, even with some of these headlines that have been coming out with with Epic and with this with this audit of the Department of Health really made a name for herself uh, and elevated the position of state auditor and inspector uh, to a, a top level statewide uh, 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 elected office. Not to say that it hasn't been in the past. It's been incredibly important in the past, but is she's really taken a lot of um, initiative uh, in a way that I think, especially in a, in a single party uh, governing uh, situation that we've got in Oklahoma, uh, to demonstrate that just because everybody's a, a registered Republican, not everybody's always on the same page. Um, and then finally, Michael, just to kind of go back to your original point here, I do think that, and I don't want to, when I say crime, I'm not saying crime, I'm using it as a uh, as a metaphor here, but I, I do think that this is an uh, instance where the cover-up is bigger than the crime. I think that voters, by and large, uh, would forgive a lot of broken eggs when you're trying to make that omelet uh, in the in the response to the pandemic. Um, we Everybody was trying to move fast. Everybody was trying to, uh, you know, get PPE and just you know, we were trying to make it up, you know, building the plane as you fly it, right? Well, the problem here isn't that they made some mistakes, because again, I think those were to be expected. It's why did they sit on this? Why did they just not disclose it and come 
clean with it um, and, you know, try to make amends for it and fix it. I think that that's what the Department of Health has said in their statement. You know, we're trying to remedy these things. Well, be clear about that and transparent about it. It shouldn't take uh, two statewide elected officials before the public finally gets to see that these problems are out there. And again, and I've said this time and again, as we as we look at some of the, the fallout from the pandemic, these are really things that we need to be learning lessons from. And to the extent that we keep them in the shadows and we don't share this information, we're not going to learn and we're not going to be better prepared for next time. I think that's exactly right, Ryan. And, and, and it goes back to just the basics. I mean, in a crisis, in something unprecedented, like we saw with the pandemic, we saw that there were, you know, there were many things that weren't in place that uh, that need to be looking toward the future. I mean, the fact that the fact that the State Department of Health didn't have a comprehensive emergency procurement policy uh, in place for something like this, whether it's COVID or something else, I mean, it did leave um, basically the whole operation in disarray. And the aftermath is, I think, what will be called into greater question, the fact that documentation even today uh, is not there, is in disarray. Um, we, by the, by the, audit report itself said that uh, there was at least 5.4 million dollars that had been paid to the paid uh, out and the goods had not been received so big questions and and again this is a backdrop talking about this is not the first time the state's been criticized on you know handling more than a billion dollars in federal aid federal dollars that have come in uh, to deal with the covid crisis so um, again, you're right, Ryan. I mean, there's a, a lot of a lot of things that need to be addressed looking forward. And I think to make a statement and and just acknowledge that maybe there were some quote technical technical errors um, is uh, probably not a big enough admission to what really has uh, taken place and needs to be corrected. Governor Stitt kicked off the 2022 legislative session with his fourth state of the state address and the last in his first term before heading into a re-election year. The governor touched on education, infrastructure, medical marijuana, and more, along with more criticism of McGirt versus Oklahoma. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the governor's speech? I mean, I think that um, it was kind of what we should have expected from a governor heading into an election year. Uh, you know, the and I think that this is a preview of some of the messaging that we're going to see from the governor as, he, as he's out on the campaign trail. Uh, you know, we've got a governor who has a legitimate, credible challenger uh, in the Democratic uh, primary right now, Joy Hoffmeister, who is the presumptive uh, nominee for the Democratic Party right now. It's, it's, it's difficult to think that there's going to be anyone uh, in the Democratic Party that's going to emerge that could challenge uh, uh, Superintendent Hoffmeister in getting the Democratic nomination. There's also more and more rumors going around that uh, Governor Stitt's going to be challenged in his own party's primary, and not just by you know some some fringe candidate, but you know maybe one, if not two, credible candidates uh, in that primary. So this is a, a governor who is entering into a legislative session, but also into a campaign season where he could possibly be besieged politically from. Uh, the left, which in Oklahoma is really, you know, kind of more the center, uh, and and from the far right, uh, which in Oklahoma is really far right, uh, and so I think that that sets up, uh, you know, what I think that that's going to inform a lot of what we see out of the governor's office and in his messaging, and and again, you know, a lot of governors whenever they deliver a state of the state address or whenever you hear a president give a, a state of the union, for most of those times we hear 
uh, folks set down the set down their political weapons, right? You know, they they talk about unity, bringing folks together. Um, but Governor Stitt has never really had that style, and he doubled down on it again in the state of the state. He knows who his friends are, and he knows who his opponents are, and he doesn't mince words about it. And you know, I think that you know that makes for a a very divisive uh, and and um, uh, adversarial situation whenever you've got. The governor governing from that position, but that's that's his style. He he hasn't deviated from from it for four years, and we shouldn't have expected it this year. Neva, well, I think I think you're right, Ryan. To the extent that a state of the state or a state of the union is the opportunity for that office holder to cast the big vision, to uh, recount uh, the successes and the things that uh, that they are uh, incredibly proud of in 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 their. Uh, administration and what has taken place. And that's what we saw with the governor this week. I mean, he really kind of painted more of the broad contrast of the what he described as the different story between Washington and the results there at, at the at the national picture and the picture here in Oklahoma, which is it is a very uh, a very bright one at the moment. And I think uh, I think he tried to capture the essence of that. I think it's interesting, you know, it, talking about the political side of this. I mean, when you have um, uh, the president's approval numbers at 39% uh, and disapproval at 54%. Um, obviously, in Oklahoma, that is, uh, that, that is a place where you really try to draw the contrast and you try to make the point that we're doing things right here and, and uh, we don't want to fall into the, um, um, into the notion of much of what's going on in, in Washington with the administration. And he said uh, that in his estimation, the governor said that there's a clear mandate for strong conservative policies so that protect liberty and defend against the Biden administration overreach. That's a theme I think clearly we will hear through um, probably through the course of the ne next 19 weeks and in the primary season and then on into the, the into the general election. So, um, I, you know, I think the, the, the takeaway for me in terms of some of what came out in specifics in the in the state of the state was the fact that we're looking at tax cuts two years in a row, the, the elimination of the state's uh, 4.5% sales tax on groceries, something that's been talked about for many years uh, at the legislature. Uh, Oklahoma's one of only 13 states uh, left that, that have a grocery tax. So something that I think will be met uh, in a very, I would assume, bipartisan um, support, and then scrapping the uh, the income tax on military retirement benefits. Again, something legislators have talked about. It's always been uh, a, an issue of uh, a budget and dollars, and you know what the ramifications are. But I think in this season, where we're seeing um, the opportunity to do a lot of things, uh, have a have a budget that is robust. Much of this, again, with this additional federal money coming in, that's going to allow for a a lot of specific projects to be done that otherwise would have to be um, sidelined or just uh, dreamed about. So it uh, it sets up, I think, for the legislators to have an interesting session, not battling over dollars that are not there, but perhaps battling over the dollars that are there and how they're going to use them. And then in the governor's uh, speech, the other thing he did point out is he wanted to increase the uh, the rainy day fund uh, that uh, that and that will take uh, that will uh, that will take some action by the legislature to get that done. So we have two billion in savings now. He'd like to see that increase. I think a lot of lawmakers agree with that. 
So uh, we'll see how all of this begins to roll out now that we're coming out of the first week of the new legislative session. Ryan House Minority Leader Emily Virgin had mentioned that he did omit mentioning any deaths from COVID, which he had done the previous year. And since that time, 10,000 people have died from COVID-19. Should that have been mentioned by Governor Stitt? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, I, I agree with Neva. There are a lot of really great things happening in Oklahoma right now at, at you know, at, at all levels of government. There are some really great bright spots that we can point to. But I, you know, I, I do agree that we have to acknowledge. I, I think I, I saw um, a, statist- a statistic the other day, and it was something that I kind of kept track of early on with COVID. If if the if all of the Oklahomans that had died of COVID uh, were a city, uh, they'd be the thirteenth. Uh, I think they'd be the thirteenth largest city in the state, um, which is kind of incredible. I remember whenever uh, it passed the number of the population of, of my hometown of Seminole, uh, and so I mean, just to kind of give you some scale and perspective. Uh, we have National Guard units right now being deployed to Oklahoma hospitals uh, to provide relief for our frontline healthcare workers. Uh, you know, I watched a, a news segment earlier this week where uh, I, I think it was the communications director at, at Integris Baptist in the interview it was in tears uh, at, with with relief uh, that the military had showed up to provide relief to the state of Oklahoma and our hospitals. That's a pretty incredible situation that we're still in. Uh, and, and I get it. I have COVID fatigue like everyone else. Uh, I'm tired of having to do all the things that we need to do to try to protect ourselves and our neighbors. And it's easy to forget uh, because I think everybody else kind of has this too. Most people do if we're honest with ourselves. Uh, and it's easy to forget though that we are still in a pandemic. Uh, many of our hospitals, if not all of our hospitals are at crisis levels. Uh, and that needs to be acknowledged. I think that you know we we can have both. I think that we can have progress, but then also acknowledge that we still have very real. Uh, we have a very real live active crisis in the state of Oklahoma that needs to be addressed. After Tuesday's elections, David Holt is returning for a second term as Oklahoma City Mayor with nearly sixty percent of the vote in a four-way race with one of the largest voter turnouts in city history. Neva. Does this give Holt a mandate heading into his next term? Well, I think uh, obviously 60 percent um, and, and a very, uh, a very spirited race, although, I mean, we, we talk about the fact that uh, this was the most expensive race in Oklahoma City history in a mayor's race. But uh, that is kind of pales in comparison to, to many other races, because we're talking about basically about a million dollar race overall. But I think when you look at it, what's fascinating is Yes, there were more more votes cast than any uh, mayoral election since 1959. The the mayor was reelected with 60 percent of the vote. But I think the the kind of the upshot to me is the fact that we did have um, an increase in voter turnout. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, four year or uh, in the last uh, mayoral election, we had, I think, an eight percent turnout. This time it spiked almost 17 percent. So I think what we saw was uh, more engagement with the kind of the the voters that are um, in a nonpartisan race, very much partisan divided. And I think, you know, that's what we saw with the candidates. We had one candidate that that came from the left, uh, the least funded candidate. We had two uh, Republicans that basically were taking the mayor on from the from the outset, attacking him, trying to make a contrast, trying to say that there there needed to be a change. And I think the mayor set a course that uh, in his campaign of how he was going to approach this, he wasn't going to react. 
He was just going to lay out the case of what he had done as mayor, what his vision was for the city. And I think uh, even in his um, um, speech on election night, I think it was uh, it cast a, a vision of you know what he saw as his theme of one OKC that this is not uh, this is not a city divided, but this is a city that can work together in a in a nonpartisan fashion and get great things done. So I think uh, I think it puts him in a very strong position, and I think uh, what we saw was when you when you kind of splinter among yourselves uh, when you have factions that try to uh, engage in an election, uh, you have to have a united front. And there certainly wasn't a united front when we had uh, both uh, Urbanic and Hefner basically uh, basically competing against each other. And I thought it was interesting that night uh, as the election results came in that uh, Frank Urbanic basically, you know, made the, his comment was that uh, uh, the citizens of Oklahoma City would not uh, ever see Carol Hefner as mayor. So, I mean, it, it showed how contentious uh, uh, it was, because if we remember, I mean, it was... Um, you know, it was Carol Hefner who basically was the su initial supporter of Urbanic, and then they split, and then she became a candidate. So it had a lot of uh, intrigue inside baseball. But nevertheless, when you look at the big picture of how this how this kind of flows out to other races, uh, I think I think we see I think we see a case where David Holt is in a uh, from a from a big city mayor position in a very enviable position to be able to move forward and uh, um, and and see where where he goes beyond maps four and and many of the other big projects that have uh, continued under his uh, leadership. Ryan, yeah, I think I think he has a mandate. It's now a matter of what he does with it. Um, and you know, to, to kind of skip back, I, you know, I do think that it's important that um, voters resoundingly rejected. Uh, the rhetoric, especially coming from the, the Hefner campaign, but you know the the Hefner uh, urbanic divide. I, mean, I we saw this, and I know we'll talk uh, in a, in a bit about Norman. But I mean, we've seen, uh, I think, in particular in Oklahoma. Maybe we don't see it on the left as much, is because there's not as many people on the left to, to split into factions, or uh, because everybody on the left is their own individual faction. Maybe that's the <laughs> uh, maybe that's the the issue. But yeah, it, you know, it's kind of like churches in small town. You know, somebody doesn't like somebody's casserole, and all of a sudden you got a new church. Uh, and I, I think that that's kind of what we saw with Urbanic and Hefner. And they did. They divided the vote. But even if they'd consolidated, even if they'd stayed together, they didn't have enough to defeat David Holt. You know, um, one thing, you know, just looking at uh, Mayor Holt's victory, I mean, he did pull together this uh, incredibly broad, uh, diverse, bipartisan coalition of people that were supporting uh, him for reelection. I think that what that does is that it gives him some liberty. And I think, you know, I would just, if I had some, you know, this is just free advice to the mayor, uh, you know, and, you know, so, you know, take it for, for what you paid for it. But it's, uh, it's this, that you didn't win because of FOP, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the police union uh, or so-called union, I'll, I'll say. Um, but, you know, you didn't win because of them. Uh, you didn't win uh, because of the far right, because you lost all those votes over there with, with Hefner and, and Urbanic. Uh, you won because you really brought people together. Um, and so your job isn't to satisfy some distinct part of your winning constituency. Uh, you have a mandate uh, built on this broad, diverse base of supporters that allows you to, to be a real independent mayor. Uh, and I, I hope and, and, and anticipate that we'll see that from, from Mayor Holt, you know, that he's not just going to be uh, in, the, in the back pocket of, of FOP or any of these other, other groups that, you know, 
it's strange for me to be on, on, on an endorsement list with, with a group like FOP. Uh, and so, you know, and I know that, you know, the mayor has told me no before. I anticipate that he can tell the FOP and other folks no as well. And, you know, that's the kind of independence that, that I'm hoping for uh, in the next four years of his term. You know, it's an, one other thing that I'd like to note, because I thought it was fascinating, is when we look at turnout and we talked about the fact that it did increase, one of the elements to that, I think, is the fact that absentee ballots um, nearly quadrupled. I mean, and that is really significant when you think about the fact that uh, um, in the last mayor's race, there were something around 1,400 absentee ballots. This time, it spiked above 5,000. And the note, I think what makes that noteworthy is that the mayor received over 4,000 of those absentee votes. So clearly, this was part of uh, an overall campaign to reach voters, to find ways uh, to uh, to get the vote out, uh, just like uh, uh, has been mentioned in, in a number of reports about the fact that the mayor on social media uh, had really kind of... Um, kind of taken that to a, a, a really high level. I mean, with 45,000 plus uh, folks on his Twitter uh, Twitter feed that follow him. I mean, that's, a you know, when you start talking about elections at this scale and having that kind of uh, reach into your voter base um, and, uh, and eligible voters across the city, it becomes significant. So I have to applaud the effort by the mayor on running a first-rate campaign, one that I think people will uh, uh, pay a lot of attention to and and uh, and make their own takeaways from it, looking at races in the future. And every professional campaign right now has someone focused exclusively on absentee ballots. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the, so that's just a thing that we're seeing. Uh, so, you know, pay attention to that. Those numbers, I imagine, will keep going up as more and more campaigns invest in that tactic. The race for Norman Mayor is headed to a runoff in April. Incumbent Brea Clark and Larry Heikola got the most votes, but neither hit above 50 percent. Ryan, what do you think of these two candidates? I think that, you know, going into uh, the runoff, it's it's Mayor Clark's to lose. Uh, you know, normally if an incumbent ends up in a runoff, I think you say that the incumbent's in trouble. Uh, if Mayor Clark had come in second going into the runoff, I'd say the incumbent's in trouble. Uh, but here you had a, a four-way uh, primary where, you know, similar to what we saw in, in Oklahoma City, you know, the, the right divided itself. Uh, and, and again, I, I just think it's, you know, just too hilarious not to mention that, that the whole group is called, you know, Unite Norman. Uh, and again, you know, they just, you know, they just, they just, you know, reproduce like churches in a small town. And, you know, now you've got these two different competing groups out there. Um, it, I don't, I don't know if that group can come back together in a way uh, to successfully challenge Mayor Clark coming up in this runoff, especially when you have Mayor Clark uh, with a well-oiled political machine uh, that I think really got jump-started on election night uh, and is is already charging towards uh, the runoff, and I think will be well-funded and um, you know well well positioned to go out, and knock doors, make sure people are voting, make sure that people are getting those absentee votes in, and in a runoff, it's. I mean, we talk about turnout's always important. Your turnout model in a runoff is so small. Uh, the percentage of voters that you're targeting in that campaign becomes so small um, that you you can really hone in and and kind of touch every voter at, at the door, the mailbox, on their phone, social media. Um, and you know, I I've got to think that a lot of the uh, the votes that uh, Midway uh, Bob got uh, are going to come over to Mayor Clark, Bob Thompson. I think a lot of those are going to come over to Mayor Clark. But again, in, the, in these runoffs, it's it's difficult to say that you have 
a lot of transferable votes. I mean, I, I know that people like to talk about that, that we're going to get these transfer votes. That assumes that those folks show up again. And I think a big chunk of them just don't. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of, of bringing votes from one candidate over, some of them will. Uh, but I, I think that kind of the, the differences that we saw in vote totals um, between the top two on, on election night, I think that we're going to see a similar result on the runoff and, and Mayor Clark will likely be able to come out on top again. This is, again, not her first radio. She got, re she got elected to council. She's been elected to mayor. She survived a, a recall election. She, you know, came out on top on a primary night. Uh, you know, so I, I think that, you know, um, she seems to be an odds on favorite for this runoff. Neva. Well, I don't, I don't know that I would agree odds on favorite. I mean, I think when you look at this race and you see the fact that there was only a thousand votes uh, difference between, uh, uh, the mayor uh, and Heikola, the number two. And so it, very competitive at the top. And then when you look at this race overall, it really is still about a referendum on the direction Norman is going and the leadership of who will be the next mayor. So I would say that, uh, you know, the big question, Ryan, is, you know, do do the folks that uh, uh, supported uh, uh, Bob Thompson, supported uh, Kish, do they come across uh, and see this as a, a clear contrast between what they don't like currently and something different uh, with, uh, the, with the opportunity to have uh, a new mayor with Larry Heikola? So, you know, the turnout was up. I mean, 18% uh, last mayor's election, it was 30% on Tuesday. I mean, that's a significant jump. And I think it did reflect the fact that uh, even though we'd like to see that number higher, that's a big number in terms of turnout. And it does set the stage when you have folks that interested that could be mobilized for one of these candidates. Um, I think there's an excellent opportunity for a very competitive uh, uh, race and an equally good turnout uh, in the runoff. I mean, historically, we always say runoffs have a huge drop off. That's true. But in this instance, there's been such focus um, uh, with the starting with the Unite Norman group uh, back uh, uh, in the summer of 2020, when the, the whole uh, police funding issue came up with the city council erupted. And then you had um, you had this group, I mean, really out there focused on changing out the mayor and the council. Um, and now, you know, with this last election in the in the municipal season, um, I think it will be all hands on deck by all of these folks. I think uh, your, your point about uh, Bob Thompson, Ryan, is, you know, will he will he move toward uh, uh, Mayor Clark or will he move toward uh, Larry Heikala? I think it's a big question because one of the things and one of the reasons he said he was running is that he wanted uh, his message to be that nonpartisan local politics needed to be returned. I mean, basically that we needed to get back to a place where we can bring the community together. And the question is which direction and which candidate will um, afford that opportunity the best. So I think it will be fascinating as, as we get into this uh, runoff and the April 5th uh, uh, election to see what happens. But there'll be a lot of eyes on this race because it does speak to the bigger picture of just changing political climate. I think we've got to mention Nicole Kish, uh, you know, a, a part of Unite Norman, um, endorsed by Governor Stitt uh, for mayor, comes in a in a in a pretty uh, you know uh, poor performance in fourth place, uh, you know, getting just twelve point five percent of the vote, um, and you know I think that. 
that's that's of note um, that that she received so few votes. I you know my sense, and you know this is all just assumption. I'm wondering if if voters that you know see themselves to the right of Mayor Clark um, or don't like Mayor Clark, the direction that she's taking the city, saw Larry Heikkila as a more moderate option. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know because a lot of, you're right. A lot of his messaging is very similar to that of Bob Thompson's. You know you know we need to you know get back to the to the basics. Um, I think where Larry Heikkila goes a little bit further than folks that you know maybe would support Bob Thompson and now potentially Mayor Clark is he has got some pretty harsh uh, language around uh, you know people that are homeless in Norman and you know the solutions to that and I think that that could become an issue that could cast him as more harsh uh, and, and more I don't want you know, maybe more extreme like Nicole Kish um, and that could I think you know favor Bria Clark going in even if folks see her as, as more partisan to the left that she's seen as more moderate than uh, uh, Larry Heikkila. And I think on Heikkila, it's also important when we talk about endorsements, uh, the fact that he had both the uh, police and fire endorsements mm-hmm. in in the le- in the election, which was significant, as well as uh, the support of uh, two uh, of the three county commissioners, uh, uh, highly popular individuals in their own right, uh, Commissioner Gary Stacy and Commissioner Harold Harrelson. So um, it'll be interesting to see how many more folks come out on both sides publicly as this uh, as this uh, runoff really heats up. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.